God loves sinners, and God declares covenant breakers righteous for not for any righteous things that they have done or will do, but God justifies sinners. God declares covenant breakers righteous only for believing in His promises. And historically, this wonderful message uh, has become the occasion out of which people have asked some very important but also misguided questions. Because if God loves sinners, and if He declares covenant breakers righteous, not for any good works that they have done, but only for believing, the question has risen, do we scorn God's free gift of righteousness if we put in any effort to be righteous? If God gives the gift of righteousness freely, does that mean that if we put in any effort, if we strive to be righteous, does that mean that we are somehow scorning God's free gift? Or to put it slightly differently, some people have asked, if living a godly life is unnecessary for salvation because God saves sinners apart from their works, does the free grace of God make a godly life unnecessary? Well, historically, these questions, and in their various forms, have come up, and it seems to me that the questions uh, really arise from misunderstanding. And if I can put it simply, I would put it this way. A good seed sprouts a good tree that bears good fruit. God gives us the gift of righteousness so that we might live righteously. The gift, that gift of righteousness, that is the seed, and our godly lives are the fruit that must grow out of that and from that seed. And it is with that in mind we hear the first command and the exhortation of this passage. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. Keep justice and do righteousness. Now, I think it's helpful for us to, uh, to take a moment and to remember the historical context of this uh, latter part of Isaiah. Uh, we haven't talked about it for a little while. Um, but remember that the historical context of the latter part of Isaiah is this very tragic reality that Babylon took Israel as captives. And so Israelites were exiles. They were strangers in a foreign land under the authority of foreign rulers. And then God raised Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus ended Israel's exile, and Israel, uh, the people of Israel were able to come home. But, you know, that was actually a very bittersweet experience for them because 
exchanging one foreign master for another foreign master, you know, it doesn't actually change anything. Sure, some of the circumstances have changed. Some of the uh, geographical locations of his people have changed. But what does it really matter if you go from serving the Babylonians to serving the Persians? What does it really matter if you go from serving the kings of Babylon to serving the kings of Persia? And because of that, this is a time in history where Israel's hope uh, to once again rise to glory as under David was looking more and more like a fantasy. And this is a time in which Israel is wondering if, if she will ever really know freedom again. And this is a time in history when she is wondering, is God going to save us again or not? Well, the message, the promise is that God will save Israel and they will know freedom, but not as Israel had imagined. And I think this is one of those many places in the Bible we realize and when when we see it, what we one for ourselves is not always what God wants for us. And what we perceive as blessing is not always the same as what God perceives as blessing for us. Because you see, Israel, Israel wanted a salvation, and in their minds, the, uh, salvation looked something very uh, specific because the kind of salvation that they wanted looked like the return of a charismatic David-like king to defeat the foreigners and the Gentiles. That's what they wanted for themselves. That's, uh, in their mind, what salvation looks like. But God, God will send a humble servant to suffer defeat and die. That's God's salvation. And God's plan was not to humiliate the Gentiles, but to bless them and to make them God's covenant people. And if so, if God's salvation is coming, and if his Savior is coming, how are they to prepare? And very tellingly, They prepare for the coming of God's salvation and His Savior, not by gathering up weapons or by training for war, but rather, God tells them, keep justice and do righteousness. That's how they are going to prepare for the coming of God's salvation and for the coming of the Savior. Why? The Lord says, keep justice and do righteousness because for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. And so let me put it this way. When people build their lives on God's promises, that hope that they have in God's promises, and in this case, when people of Israel build their lives on the promise of the coming of God's salvation in the coming of God's Savior, that hope imparts a specific quality to their lives. And so Israel's hope 
for the coming Savior would mold their lives around the qualities that the Savior himself loves. That is why we hear keep justice. And in Isaiah and indeed in all of the Old Testament, the word justice, it really has the sense of all the upright things that God has revealed. That's really the basic meaning of justice, all the upright, holy things that God has revealed. And do righteousness, live according to all that God has revealed. And you realize that here there is not even a hint that our own righteousness is the seed from which the fruit of salvation grows. Rather, it's the gift of salvation, the hope of Savior, that is the seed from which a holy and devoted life grows as fruit. So keep justice and do righteousness. And the second thing that we notice in this passage is the attention that is paid to keeping the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. And you realize in the space of eight verses, Sabbath keeping is mentioned three times. And you have to realize if in the space of eight verses, God mentions Sabbath keeping three times, it must be really important to God. I mean, do you see that? But more than that, the reason God brings up Sabbath keeping three times in the space of eight verses is that when we think about Sabbath keeping, it helps us to understand what that life looks like that is set and it is molded by our hope in God's salvation and Savior. And so that's what we are going to do. We are going to think about the three times Sabbath keeping is mentioned. And the first time is in chapter 56, verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this. Does what? It's referring to the verse that came before. Blessed is the man who keeps justice and does righteousness. And the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Now, in the Old Testament, Sabbath keeping is really the shorthand that describes the, the entire quality of man's devotion to God. Because in that one visible conduct of keeping the Sabbath holy, the all the invisible spiritual health and spiritual sickness become visible. That's why in the Old Testament, Sabbath keeping is really a shorthand that describes and reveals the, the entire condition of man's heart. Because in order to keep the Sabbath, of course, it was one of the Ten Commandments, keep the Sabbath Holy On that day you shall not do any work. And it was the command in which not only were God's people forbidden from working, but it was a day set aside to make it hollow, to keep it holy, a day devoted to worship of God. And in order to keep the Sabbath holy meant acknowledging, first of all, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. In other words... 
God ordained the, the day of Sabbath for worship and rest, and as his people kept the Sabbath holy, and as they ceased from their labors and their work, they were recognizing, you know, it's actually from God our daily bread comes. It is actually God who gives us everything that we need, not our anxious toil of unbelief. And what's fascinating to me is that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, until the Lord commanded the Sabbath day to be kept holy, all of human history has never had a concept of day off. <laughs> and that tells us something about God's heart. Not only does it tell us, remember, I am the one who provides for you. Everything you need comes from me. But not only that, God is unique in that he tells his people, you know, that the, that the signature moves of the idols of the world is to say, do more, work more. But what's unique about God is, I want you to rest. <laughs> rest. And so for God's people to recognize and to keep the Sabbath holy means to recognize, you know, it's not our anxious striving, working our fingers to the bone that provides for us what we need, but it is God. And so they would set that day aside for worship. And in order to keep the Sabbath holy, God cannot be an afterthought something that we would fit into our four lives when we don't have anything more pressing or interesting. Rather, keeping the Sabbath day holy means letting our covenant relationship with God organize every aspect of our personal and professional life. So that when we let our covenant relationship with God organize every aspect of our lives, we think about the entire week. You know, what commitments uh, do I need to stay away from and avoid in order that I may acknowledge God's kindness, His provisions, His place, and His authority in my life? How do I need to spend and organize the rest of the six days of the week so that I may set this day apart in worship? And so, in order to keep the Sabbath day holy, it's not just setting one day out of seven to go to church, or in Israel's case, to rest and to worship. In order to keep the Sabbath day holy, we needed to organize the entire week letting our covenant relationship with God guide us in the decisions that we make, the things that we choose to do and the things that we choose not to do. That's why Sabbath-keeping is what reveals just what kind of life we are living the other six days of the week. And Sabbath-keeping is really the one visible act that makes visible our invisible spiritual health and sickness. 
Now, the second time we hear about Sabbath keeping is in chapter 56, verses 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. Now, it, it sounds strange to us, but in those days, high-ranking officials in the king's courts were often castrated, uh, especially if they had dealings with the king's wives or his harem. I think that the reason is obvious. But the, the highest officials in the royal court were often castrated because I think the idea was that the man serves his king best if he's not preoccupied with building his own legacy and if he's not distracted with building up his own house. And with those distractions out of the way, that man can devote his entire life to building the king's legacy, to build up the king's household. And at this point, I'm a little tempted to say, you know, that may not be the worst idea in the world. (laughs) If our politicians were eunuchs, Perhaps our country would be in somewhat of a better condition. But that was the idea in those days, that that the the highest officials in king's courts were eunuchs in order that they may devote themselves to the king's cause and free of distractions. Uh, Be that as it may, you realize it was a considerable loss for that person. And in fact... It had religious significance as well because if we read Deuteronomy chapter 23, we read that the eunuchs were disqualified uh, from entering the assembly of the Lord. Uh, They, eunuchs, were in in many ways uh, bearing a damage to God's image. And no one but the one who is whole may enter into God's presence. So to be a eunuch was to be shut out from the ministries of grace, to the, from the fellowship of God's people, and most importantly, it meant to be shut out from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord says here, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. There's something amazing that is being said here. The eunuchs who have lost and given up so much, who are denied so many things, but if they keep the Sabbath, if their lives are transformed by God's covenant of grace, and if their relationship with God organizes their hearts, devotions, and affections, and their lives and their actions, and when he's devoted to the Lord and it builds God's house, For that devotion, God promises him everything that was denied him. I will give in my house. They are brought into God's house. And within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Eunuchs in those days, they were living for other people's legacies, to build up other people's homes. But God says to them, I will give them a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Thirdly, the third mention of the Sabbath is in verses 6 and 7. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him 
to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, do you remember last week when we looked at chapter 55, we saw once again how Israel's vision for the future and history were radically different from God's vision for history and future. Israel wanted to rise over against the Gentiles, to be exalted over and above them. God's vision for history and future was to bring the nations and make them, with Israel, his covenant people. And we see that here, don't we? The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. And here, the promise is that God will receive even the worship of the foreigners, and they will have fellowship with him. The house of prayer... Think about what that really means. To pray to God means to have fellowship with him, to hear his word and to speak back to him in prayer. It means God is inviting them, even the foreigners, into an intimate and deep fellowship. And we see that God's design is very clear, whether Jew or Gentile. Their hope in God's Savior will impart to them the very qualities of devotion, joy in prayer, righteousness, faithfulness, because he holds fast to the covenant. There is one pattern of godly living that is befitting, that is appropriate, and that is becoming whether Jew or Gentile, if your hope is set on Jesus Christ, there's only one pattern of godly living. It is to be devoted. It is to find joy in fellowship with God, to live a righteous life and to be faithful because that's who Jesus is. And I think now we can bring all this together. Let hope shape you. Let hope shape you. In Acts chapter 8, there is a very important and a very fascinating event that's recorded for us. In Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord takes Philip to meet an Ethiopian eunuch who we read was a court official of Candace queen of the Ethiopians. And in Acts chapter 8, we read that this Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep, he was taken to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. But he could not understand it. This Ethiopian eunuch, these words that he read, they baffled him. So when God's angel, the angel of the Lord, brings Philip, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? 
about himself or about someone else? Who is it that is being led like a sheep to the slaughter, who like a lamb before a shearer is silent? Tell me who this is. And then we read in Acts chapter 8 that Philip told him the good news about Jesus. From Isaiah chapter 53, and I have no doubt that Philip began with Isaiah chapter 53 and kept up until chapter 56, verse 4, at the very least. For thou says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's why in Acts chapter 8 we read that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. You see, because on that day this Ethiopian eunuch found that God's promises are true. It was true for him. That through faith in Jesus Christ, he, he who considered himself a dry tree, he who was denied so many things, he who had nothing to leave behind, he who had spent his entire life in the service of an earthly master, he realized that he was serving a greater master than the Queen Candace. And this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, went away rejoicing, devoted to serve the great king. And how about you? What we need to recognize is this, that the Lord, after teaching his people about the suffering servant that he was about to send, about the salvation that was coming. And he tells them, keep justice and do righteousness. Keep my Sabbath. That is to say, even for people who could only wait for the fulfillment of the hope from a distance, who, who could only see very dimly what all the God's promises meant, even for them it was becoming to be molded and shaped by God's promises, to set their hopes on God's Savior, and to be devoted to God, to, to have their entire lives shaped, organized, reoriented, reprioritized by their covenant relationship with God. And if that's the case, how much more for you and for me who see with clarity what God's promise means what in fact he has done to fulfill his promises how jesus we were looking for a powerful warrior god sent a suffering servant and jesus came and with his suffering and that he redeemed us and if so how much more fitting is it for you and for me to set our hopes on Jesus Christ and to have our lives, our entire lives reorganized, reoriented, that we may be devoted to serve the great King. 
And notice, loved ones, that God planted in you the seed of grace. And what fruit is it bearing? We have the hope of Jesus Christ. Are his qualities being imprinted on us? Does our covenant relationship with God order every aspect of life, whether it's personal or professional? Does our covenant relationship with God have a saying in what kind of commitments we make or not? And I urge your loved ones, do not hold your heart back from the Lord. You serve the great king, and there is joy in his service. But alas, you and I, we, we're just like Israel. Uh, We always want something else from God. Because what we think is blessing is not the same as what God says is blessing. What we think is good for us is not the same as what God says is good for us. But here's the real question. Who's right? God? Or us? Who's right? What God says is a blessing for us or what we think is a blessing for us. Well, the Lord says that you are his and he is yours. And he tells us that there is joy in his service. And God has given us the better thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that that you remind us that we, we are so quick and eager to choose for ourselves the things that appeal to us but are not blessings indeed. And we resist, we, we complain when you offer us true joy and blessing. Oh God, we pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that by your Spirit's power and grace that you would imprint upon us the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts, our thoughts, our conduct would become more and more like Jesus' heart, his desires, and his ways. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.